Dog Days of Podcasting, Day 17, Thursday, August 20th, 2020. Today's topic, the 1918-1919 flu pandemic. Speaking off the top of my head right now, I would think maybe the three biggest pandemics or epidemics people know of other than our current situation would be the Black Death, which we have won over. Maybe the polio epidemic. I feel like everybody knows about that, which we probably will get to. And, of course, the Spanish flu, the 1918-1919 flu. So with that, I feel like people probably already know a lot about the flu, the Spanish flu, and maybe it's less interesting in that regard. But I will cover it anyway. Let's give it a day. And there's probably a lot in here you already know, but I'll try to throw in some things that maybe you don't know about or things, you know, again, I'm not an expert. I This is stuff I read yesterday, you know, or the day before. So it's just things I find that I think are kind of interesting. First of all, uh, how many were infected in the 1918 and 1919 flu? It's really hard to get good numbers, maybe 500 million, give or take a few million, <laughs> A few hundred million, probably. The death toll, this is crazy. Uh, depending on where you read, it could be anywhere from 17 million to 100 million. I don't know why it's such a wide range for something that happened fairly recently. Uh, but generally, we're approaching numbers here of the Black Death. Big, big numbers. The flu pandemic of 1918 is sometimes known as the mother of all pandemics. The so-called Spanish flu pandemic was the deadliest in history, affecting one-third of the world's population and killing up to 100 million people. The Spanish flu, the first known pandemic to involve the H1N1 influenza A virus, came in several waves and killed its victims quickly, often within a matter of hours or days. More U.S. soldiers in World War I died from the flu than from battle. Way more, actually. As you may have heard, the term Spanish flu is grossly unfair. Interestingly, the origin origin of the flu pandemic still seems to be unclear because a number of outbreaks occurred simultaneously. The first observations were in the United States, Fort Riley, Kansas, as well as New York City, France, Germany, the UK, and possibly China. To maintain morale, Countries that were in World War I tend to censor or minimize early reports. And I don't think it was always official censorship. Reporters just, uh, in some cases, just on their own censored things because they didn't want the people thinking their soldiers were all dying of the flu in the middle of this war. Uh, Newspapers were free to report the epidemic's effects in neutral Spain, though such as the grave illness of King Alfonso XIII. And these stories created a false impression of Spain as the origin or as especially hard hit. This gave rise to the name Spanish flu, as it was called, uh, sorry, it wasn't called the Spanish flu everywhere. In Senegal, for example, it was named the Brazilian flu. And in Brazil, the German flu. While in Poland, it was known as the Bolshevik disease. For a while in Spain itself, the nickname for the flu, the Naples Soldier, 
was adopted from a 1916 operetta, The Song of Forgetting, after someone quipped that the play's most popular musical number, Naples Soldier, was as catchy as the flu. The 1918 flu pandemic was truly global, spreading even to the Arctic and remote Pacific Islands. The unusually severe disease killed between 2 and 20% of those infected, as opposed to the more usual flu mortality rate of 0.1%. The total mortality of the, of the 1918-1919 pandemic is not known, but it is estimated that 2.5 to 5% of the world's population's population was killed. As many as 25 million may have been killed in the first 25 weeks. Contrast that to HIV-AIDS killing 25 million in 25 years. Symptoms were so unusual that initially influenza was misdiagnosed as dengue fever, cholera, or typhoid. One observer wrote, one of the most striking of the complications was hemorrhage from mucous membranes, especially from the nose, stomach, and intestines. Bleeding from the ears and hemorrhages in the skin also occurred. The majority of deaths, of deaths were from bacterial pneumonia, a secondary infection caused by the flu, but the virus also killed people directly, causing, causing massive hemorrhages and edema in the lung. Remember, there wasn't much in the way of treatment. Penicillin wasn't even invented yet. While most flu outbreaks kill the very young, you may have heard this before as well, while most flu outbreaks kill the very young and the very old, this one actually hit young adults the hardest. It had originally been surmised that maybe this was actually due to the stronger immune system of younger adults, such that their immune systems went into overdrive, attacking their own bodies and their own lungs, and killed them. But evidence points against this idea. Amazingly, I have not found a real satisfactory explanation that's been widely accepted for why young adults were so especially hard hit. One decent explanation uh, for young men being particularly hard hit was that many of them were engaged in war, living in hard and dirty conditions, crowded together, stressed out, and not eating well and lacking certain vitamins. Why then would it hit young women? Maybe the young men were fraternizing with the young women and gave them the flu. I mean, I don't know. By the way, I think the idea why little kids and the elderly are so susceptible is that for one, little kids do not have a built-up immune system yet. They've not been exposed to a lot of uh, flu and so haven't built up the immunity yet. And so that's why little kids and babies can be very susceptible to the flu. And of course, the elderly are just susceptible because they are elderly and their immune system doesn't work as well anymore. And they have other associated illnesses and it's more serious when they get sick. So usually young adults are the, the ones most able to fight off the flu. Anyway, although I couldn't really find a satisfactory explanation uh, for why young adults were hit the most. I did find this, and it's kind of fun. It was written by genealogist Ruth Craig in 2017 in an article in Smithsonian Magazine. She may not be a flu expert, but it's still kind of interesting. She was tracing the life of Aldolfo Sartini, who was born in Italy in 1889, who moved to the States, was drafted, and stationed at Camp Devons near Boston in March of 1918. She writes, 
While a mild flu circulated during the spring of 1918, the deadly strain appeared on U.S. soil on Tuesday, August 27th, when three Navy dock workers at Commonwealth Pier in Boston fell ill. Within 48 hours, dozens more were infected. Ten days later, the flu was decimating Camp Devens. A renowned pathologist from John, Johns Hopkins, William Welch, was brought in. He realized that, quote, this must be some new kind of plague or infection, unquote. Viruses, minuscule agents that can pass through fine filters, were poorly understood. Remember I talked about these filters, the Cumberland filter with the tobacco mosaic virus? Anyway, she continues, with men mobilizing for World War I, the flu spread to military installations throughout the U.S. and to the general population. It hit Camp Humphreys, which is in Virginia and is now called Fort Belvoir. It hit Camp Humphreys in mid-September and killed more than 400 men there over the next month. This included Aldolfo Sartini, age 29. She then states, Recent analyses revealed that the deaths in 1918 were highest among individuals born around the years 1889, like Aldolfo. 1889, does that ring a bell? Remember the last episode? That was the last big out, uh, outbreak, the last big pandemic, 1889 to 1890. So she's saying people born around then were particularly susceptible to the, the 1918 flu. She continues, an earlier flu pandemic emerged then in 1889 and involved a virus that was likely of a different subtype than the 1918 strain. These analyses engendered a novel hypothesis about the susceptibility of healthy young adults in 1918. Exposure to an influenza virus at a young age increases resistance to a subsequent infection with the same or similar virus. On the flip side, a person who is a child around the time of a pandemic may not be resistant to other dissimilar viruses. Flu viruses fall into groups that are related evolutionarily. The virus that circulated when Adolfo was a baby was likely in what is called group 2, whereas the 1918 virus was group 1. Adolfo would therefore not be expected to have a good ability to, to respond to group 1. In fact, exposure to group 2 virus as a young child may have resulted in a dysfunctional re response to group 1, exacerbating his condition. So what she's saying is that the group 2 people in 1918 were particularly, I'm sorry, so the 1918 group two was particularly hard on people who were little when the 1889 group one flu was hit. She continues, support for this hypothesis was seen with the emergence of what's known as the Hong Kong flu virus in 1968. That was, again, a group two virus like 1889 and had severe effects on people who had been a children around the time of the 1918 Group 1 flu. In other words, those who died in the 1968 Group 2 flu were 65 or older, so they were very little when the 1918 Group 1 flu hit. So can you follow all that? It's a little confusing. So first of all, what are these groups? I'm really not sure. I don't see that terminology used elsewhere. Uh, I can say this, in, in 1889, the virus was H3N8, 1918, H1N1, 1968, H3N2, 
1989 and 1986 are H3. Maybe she's calling that group 2. 1918 H1. Maybe she's calling that group 1. I don't really know. I know that was a little bit hard to follow, but the idea is if you're infected by one group as a little kid, you're more susceptible for a different group later on. That's what she's saying. I didn't see uh, anyone else verifying what she is saying about this. However, I feel like I have read a similar idea that what infects you when you are little can make a difference when you are older. So maybe I'll come across that again and we'll explain it some more. Let's back up a little bit and just kind of talk about the timeline for this 1918 flu. The pandemic is conventionally marked as having begun on March 4th, 1918, with the recording of the case of Albert Gitchell, an army cook at Camp Funston in Kansas in the United States, despite there having been cases before him. The disease had been observed in that county in January of 1918, prompting local doctor Loring Minor to warn the U.S. Public Health Service. Within days of Gitchell's illness, 522 men at the camp had reported sick. As the U.S. entered World War I in early 1918, which, remember, uh, will end in November of 1918, the flu spread to other U.S. Army camps and Europe, becoming epidemic in the Midwest, East Coast, and French ports by April of 1918, and reaching the Western Front by the middle of the month. Of course, it's not just the U.S. spreading it, but it was coming from other places as well. The first wave of the flu was in the first quarter of 1918 and was actually relatively mild. Mortality rates were not appreciably above normal in the U.S., about 75,000 people. Flu-related deaths were reported in the first six months of 1918, compared to 63,000 during the same time in 1915. Unlike today's COVID-19, though, this virus did not like warm weather, and its spread diminished during the summer. But the very deadly second wave began in the second half of August. Helped by troop movements, it spread over the next two months to all of North America, then to Central and South America, also reaching Brazil and the Caribbean on ships. The U.S. response to the 1918 epidemic parallels our current situation with COVID. Yes, people wore masks. Yes, there were school and church and business closings. Yes, social, social isolation was called for. Yes, there was not a good coordinated federal response. And instead, that was left up to states or cities or counties. As such, responses to the flu varied widely depending on where you lived. And yes, there were those who took it seriously and others who did not. For example, in Feld, after Philadelphia was hit with one case, they immediately started a campaign to deter people from coughing or sneezing uh, in public or even spitting. But a week later, they allowed this Liberty Parade, I think it was called the Liberty Parade, a parade to raise money for the war. And over 200,000 people attended this parade Almost overnight, there were 20,000 cases, and the city then had to shut down all gatherings and all businesses and such. Within 72 hours of the parade, every bed in Philadelphia's 31 hospitals was filled. A week later, some 2,600 people in Philadelphia had died. Another week later, the, that number rose to 4,500. With many of the city's health professionals pressed into military service, 
Philadelphia was unprepared for this deluge of death. And that's another problem. A lot of physicians are in Europe uh, dealing with World War I, making problems worse in the United States. In contrast, St. Louis mandated quarantines after about two people were uh, affected. So right away, they also implemented all types of reg regulations like masks, social distancing, uh, keeping the, and, and that kept the death rate in St. Louis uh, down very well. Other cities and other states did similar things. Again, it varied depending on where you were. In Arizona, you could be fired $10 for not wearing the proper protective gear. Studies now show the best approach was closing public spaces, including churches, schools, theaters, and other big gatherings. But some cities did not do that. In night. In October of 1918 alone, 195,000 Americans died of the flu. World War I only killed 116,000 Americans total. I shouldn't say only, but 116,000 died in World War I, 195,000 of the flu in one month. The flu, though, also likely hurt Germany's war effort greatly. They were hit badly as well and possibly could have sped up the end of the war. But then, uh, the war ends November 1918, soldiers returned home to the United States, and there was another big resurgence, uh, because they're mingling with everyone. Fortunately, uh, when the summer of 1919 came again, the, the flu uh, diminished and kind of petered out, as we say, uh, possibly by kind of general herd immunity, uh, which a that happened, that's lucky, it does not always happen, or the uh, virus mutated. Finally, uh, yes, there were snake oil salesmen popping up as well, trying to, remember I said there wasn't really much in the way of treatment, so there were people selling all types of crazy things trying to, to fight the flu, so Vicks VapoRub said it could, quote, stimulate the mucous membranes to throw off the germs. There was also Dr. Pierce's Pleasant Pellets, and believe it or not, Miller's antiseptic snake oil. Talk to you tomorrow.